The UN says that humanity stands on the brink of catastrophic man-made climate change. But is it true? Not a chance. But we do stand on the brink of catastrophic government policies that threaten to ruin the nation our forefathers built and defended against tyranny. So what drives the climate scare, Jay? Besides simple ignorance, the scare is driven by corporate greed and the desire of governments to control all aspects of our lives, Tom. Is this part of something more sinister? Indeed it is. Whether it's climate change or a pandemic or socialism, it really means sacrificing your rights and accepting the tyranny of the fourth branch of government, the bureaucracy. It must be stopped. This is The Other Side of the Story with Dr. Jay Lair and Tom Harris of the International Climate Science Coalition. Across the Western world, we have people falling for the climate scare. They are willing to risk impoverishing an entire civilization to finance impractical and expensive wind turbines and solar panels to supposedly stop climate change. And it's not just government, it's big business, big labor, and practically all of academia. Jay, I understand that this is having a particularly bad impact on the state of Pennsylvania. You know, it is, and I kind of cut my teeth as a geologist and energy expert in the state of Pennsylvania, working in summers at their different oil fields. So to me, Pennsylvania, it's called the Keystone State. It is the key to all of America and a huge energy leader. They were the leader in hydraulic fracturing and horizontal drilling. And it is incredibly sad to me to see them follow uh, another path. And it's going to be exciting, I think, for our listeners to understand their decline and what the chances of recovering in the future are from our guest, who is very definitely an expert at everything that is going on in his state. Mm -hmm, exactly. Well, our guest today is Gordon Tom, Senior Fellow with the Commonwealth Foundation for Public Policy Alternatives, a think tank based in Harrisburg, Pennsylvania. Gordon is also Senior Advisor for the CO2 Coalition and the primary editor of the best-selling book that we've spoken about before, Inconvenient Facts, the science that Al Gore doesn't want you to know about. As an energy writer and consultant, Gordon's clients have included the natural gas and nuclear power industries and the operator of the nation's largest high voltage transmission system. So he'll be very good to talk about all these things. Gordon has spoken on behalf of the International Atomic Energy Agency on the lessons of Fukushima and the Three Mile Island nuclear accidents. In fact, as an executive in the electric utility and the nuclear power industries, Gordon led communications teams in the recovery from the Three Mile Island accident. He's also worked as a newspaper reporter and columnist and as a director with an international managing management consulting firm. So welcome to the show, Gordon. Thank you. I appreciate the opportunity to speak to you people. Yeah, that's great. Well, Gordon's experience is so broad and we'll try and get to talk about most of the topics that you included in the introduction, Tom. But there's a different area that I want to start with. I was fortunate to read an article that Gordon wrote explaining the problem we have with people who work in government 
who have never held a real job, who have absolutely no experience, whatever, to become the governors of our lives, of our states, of our nation. The wrong people come to the surface and take charge of our nation and our lives. I'd like Gordon to give a little bit of information on that to our listeners, because I think it's very likely people haven't realized how we end up with these lunkheads. <laughs> well, I think it's a reflection of, of how our society is, has evolved in my lifetime, actually. When I was growing up, I was raised by people and nurtured by people who made things, grew things, and had a real appreciation for what it took to make things and grow things. For instance, my, my grandfather had a small farm in Western Pennsylvania, and uh, he worked on it uh, when he wasn't working at a power plant. The local utility company wanted to put a, a power line across his property to uh, supply electricity to a coal mine. And he said, sure. And I can remember as a child hearing people ask him, aren't you bothered by that, uh, that power line going across your, your property? And he goes, well, the coal mine needed electricity. I mean, it was not yeah. a big deal, right? They, they, I, they compensated him very modestly for putting some utility poles on his property. I live right now, I live in South Central Pennsylvania. I've been a native, I've been, I'm a native of Pennsylvania. I've lived here all my life. So I live in a, a rural development, a subdivision of a couple hundred homes. And, and I'm surrounded by cornfields and, and meadows, right, in rural Pennsylvania. Well, we have people that move in here from more urban areas, and they complain about the smell of manure in the springtime. Well, that's just the way it is, right? Yeah. So what we have here, we have more people these days than we used to who don't manufacture things or don't grow things. They sell things. They market things. They litigate things. They write about things. But they don't have, a, in my estimation, my perspective, they don't seem to have many of them, much of an appreciation for what it takes to make things and grow and grow things. And so some of these people end up in government and they seem to think that with the wave of a hand, they can solve what they perceive to be a climate crisis. It's hurting working people and it's hurting, it's hurting consumers because they're driving up the price of electricity. They're driving up the price. Well, currently they're driving up the price of virtually everything. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's funny. I have never thought of bananas as coming from Pennsylvania, but I guess the banana movement build absolutely nothing anywhere near anybody is growing in Pennsylvania. <laughs> yeah, exactly right. And it's the temperate climate version of bananas. But, <laughs> yeah. um, our, our, our governor, for example, uh, Tom Wolf, Democrat governor, who's just finishing up his second four year term. Yeah, he promoted himself as a businessman, but he was in business, but he inherited the business, an established business that was quite successful. And I don't think he ever really gained an appreciation for what it takes to operate a business. Uh, as an example, at the beginning of the pandemic, he shut down rest stops on the Pennsylvania Turnpike. And they were closed for, for I think, two weeks. Now, anybody with any common sense knows that truck drivers have to go to the bathroom. Well, how do you do something like that? And that's just a tiny, tiny example of the kinds of things we experienced throughout the pandemic from that administration. He would shut down restaurants 
on a day's notice in advance of a holiday weekend after the restaurants had already purchased thousands and thousands of dollars of, of, of goods to serve their customers. Just <laughs> insane. One of the interesting things you opened my eyes to, Gordon, was that young folks who maybe study political science in college, they come out of college and they want to join the staff of some politician at some level. And it never occurred to me that they see that as a path to actually running for election. That, yeah. that instead of gaining any smarts and experience in what they're doing, their goal is to run for election and be in charge of people about whom they know absolutely nothing. It did not, I didn't realize that was a career path, but I've investigated it since reading your article and there isn't any question it's true. So I think our listeners would be interested in maybe understanding more about the young people that work on the staffs of politicians at every level. I grew up in western, southwestern Pennsylvania in the coal and steel regions, but uh, the last 30 years I've been living in, uh, in central Pennsylvania, close to the state capital. So I see this happen time after time. A young person comes out of college having majored in economics or political science or whatever, which is fine, but then they uh, end up taking a job, an entry-level job in a, in a government agency or in the state house or state senate, and they become a legislative staffer. And the next thing you know, they're getting elected, you know, after a few years, they're, maybe their boss retires, decides not to run again or something, and they run for the office and they get themselves elected to the state house without, as my grandfather would say, without ha having earned an honest day's work in their life. My, my grandfather is famous for saying that. I have all kinds of grandfather sayings, but it's, uh, well, it's, not, a good, it's not a good mix. And I'm not saying no. there's anything wrong with the work they do as legislative staffers and such. There's nothing inherently wrong with that, but I don't think it's very good foundation for governing people. Well, I, there's yeah. no question in my mind. When I worked in the uh, oil and uh, fields in college in Pennsylvania, I thought of the state as being rather conservative, incredibly hardworking people that I knew in my years when I worked there. And now I see a, a governor who is very, very liberal, and I'm seeing all kinds of legislation that is very liberal. How did, or am I wrong that Pennsylvania was once conservative and is now liberal? And if I'm not wrong, how did this occur? I think I think it probably is more liberal than than it once was. I happen to live in a very conservative part of the state, but the urban areas of Pittsburgh and Philadelphia have strong democratic strongholds. However, it's been shifting lately. Um, for example, I just uh, dug out some numbers just so I thought this might come up. Currently, uh, the Democrats have about and, and you know at one time there were there's been always been a lot of Democrats in Pennsylvania, but they were kind of FDR Democrats. Franklin Delano Roosevelt Democrats. My parents were Democrats of that sort. Of course, we know what's happened to the Democratic Party in the last, in recent years. And we now have about 4 million Democrats compared to 3.4 million Republicans in Pennsylvania. So there's about a 600,000 vote advantage for Democrats. However, that's down significantly. Back in 2016, there was almost a 900,000 vote 
uh, registration difference between Democrat and Republican. Republicans have been picking up voters from the Democrat Party for a number of years now. We're beginning to see that in some of the re election results. The, mm -hmm. the state houses are actually Republican majorities, have been for some number of years. The Republicans haven't done a good job of holding the uh, governor's uh, mansion. Is Biden a favorite son of the state? I understand. Am I right? He actually comes from Scranton, Pennsylvania. I believe was he, he, he was born. He was born in that region. Yes. Yeah. I mean, is there any reason that people in the, the state today like him because he's from Pennsylvania or is that way too long, more than a half a century ago? Yeah, yeah. I mean, Joe Biden likes to play that card, so to speak, when he's campaigning in Pennsylvania. But he's been in Delaware a lot longer than he ever spent in Pennsylvania. And, and by the way, Joe Biden happens to be one of those people who got came out of law school and became a politician. And yeah, I saw a, an interview of his uh, shortly after he was in, I think, the, 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 in Congress. And uh, he, he was being interviewed. And one of his complaints was he wasn't getting paid enough. And he, he was determined to make that deal with that. And I think we know how he managed to find a way to deal with it. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. Now, you were talking about coal plants in Pennsylvania. So what's the state? I mean, you used to have, you used to be using coal a lot. And we still do, actually. But it's been in decline. Part of the reason it's declined is because natural gas, until recently, has been very cheap. It's been very cheap because of, I think, what Jay re referenced earlier, Pennsylvania is a leader in the production of natural gas, having pioneered, been one of the pioneers in the hydrofracturing technology. So natural gas got very, very inexpensive here in Pennsylvania, and it became a, prefer, a preferred fuel for generating electricity. So that helped to push some coal plants out. But then regulations have, have been really hard on coal. We, we know about the Obama war on coal, which now is being continued by the Biden administration. We have about 14 um, major coal-fired power plants units in Pennsylvania, but 10 years ago or so, there were probably twice that many in mm -hmm. Pennsylvania. And some of those were retired because they were old and, and, and had you know, exhausted their useful life, but others were retired because of regulations. And, and the and the price of gas. This current governor, Tom Wolf, the Democrat, he's managed to push through. It's being challenged in in the courts right now. But it, as of now, he's managed to push through Pennsylvania's participation in what's known as a regional greenhouse gas initiative, uh, which is something that was put together by uh, about a dozen Northeast and Mid Atlantic states. And he has Pennsylvania joining that unless the opponents are successful in court. And that threatens the continued operation of, among others, three major coal-fired power plants in Western Pennsylvania that employed themselves employ uh, more than 500 workers. And, and if you count the people who are employed in support positions in the various communities, it's over 8,000 workers. So mm, this wow. is a very, very serious problem. Mm -hmm. You know, it strikes me that replacing coal-fired power plants with natural gas-fired power plants is kind of a reverse Midas touch. It's kind of like turning gold into lead. I mean, you know, surely we should be saving the natural gas 
for home heating and for pharmaceuticals and all the other things that we, you know, that it's special for and use the coal for baseload power. Wouldn't you say, would, would you agree with that? Well, there, there's, a, there's certainly a logic to that. The worry about running out of gas doesn't seem to be very much on people's minds because there's just so much of it these mm-hmm. days. But, but coal is so, is perfect for, for generating electricity. For one thing, you can store weeks and weeks of supplies on this on site and if there's shortages in the supply chain or interruptions in the supply chain it's not so much of a problem with something like natural gas if a transmission line a, a pipeline has an interruption you just don't run the the uh, natural gas plant you know mm-hmm. and it would be more secure surely against terrorism and things like that to have coal versus yes. natural gas as your source Exactly. I, I think that's, well, that's very true. Yeah. Our listeners may not be aware that as far back as I can remember, the state of New York has not allowed hydraulic fracturing and horizontal drilling. And at least uh, some many months ago, if you lived on the border between New York and Pennsylvania, you saw jobs in Pennsylvania flourishing and a lot of good work was being done in the natural gas area. And on the New York side, uh, those people were totally uh, shut out. Does that still remain a fact? That's absolutely the case, Jay. Uh, that's absolutely the case. Probably two or three years ago, there were some counties in, in upstate New York that were proposing to secede from New York and join Pennsylvania. I personally would welcome them, but I don't think it ever, that proposal ever got very far. Well, I understand that your refineries are under attack. Uh, I think our listening audience probably is not aware of the role of refineries in the entire energy business. But where does Pennsylvania stand in terms of the number of refineries and how they are under under attack, is my understanding, along with uh, your coal mines? This Reggie... Regional Greenhouse Gas Initiative, it's one thing that's a threat to refineries here in Pennsylvania. Also, currently, a bigger, a bigger problem for these refineries is the renewable fuel standard, which is a federal requirement that refineries add ethanol to their, their products, gasoline, diesel, and others, other fuels, add ethanol. And if they can't or are not in a position to add ethanol, they have to buy credits. And these credits, there's a refinery in south of Philadelphia. It's called, it's owned by Monroe Energy. And they are currently spending hundreds of millions of dollars a year buying credits because they don't have this, uh, sufficient distribution to, distribution points to allow them to add ethanol. So they're, they're required to buy credits. And the price of these credits have been driven up by demand and by speculation on Wall Street to the point that they've spent more than a billion dollars buying credits in recent years, which is many, many times the amount of money they paid to buy the refinery in the first place back in 2012. Oh, wow. And, and here's, 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 this is a heartbreaker. This refinery is located right next to a little a, a town of Chester, south of Philly, south of Philadelphia, on the Delaware River. Chester is ridden with poverty 
and crime, okay? These jobs at this refinery provide high paying, highly skilled jobs. They employ at the refinery, they employ, oh, I, th I think it's something over 500 people. Yeah, five, about 500 people. And quite often when there's major maintenance projects going on, that refinery will employ as many as 1,400 members of the Philadelphia building trades, again, with high paying jobs. You know what building trades pay. You have a rough idea. These people make six figures. Stop for a minute because we've passed over something that I'm guessing at least half of our audience does not understand. And that's the renewable fuel standard. Why are we putting ethanol into gasoline? I mean, what is the value of it? Where did it start? Why are we doing this? Yeah, I recently wrote a column about that. And I, I think the title of the column was something like, is, is the renewable fuel standard dumb or a crime or both? I, I conclude it's both. But here, back in under the Bush administration, and, you know, Republicans are not totally clean on all this either. Back under the Bush administration, the George W. Bush administration, uh, the renewable fuel standard was passed as a way of uh, diminishing our reliance on oil. So if you add ethanol to gasoline, you need to refine less crude oil into gasoline. Okay, that was the that was the premise. And then more recently, it's also been promoted as a way of reducing carbon emissions, which turns out to be totally bogus. That's the reason for the renewable fuel standard. It makes no sense because it drives up both adding ethanol to fuels, it drives up the price of food because you're taking corn and making, making a fuel out of it. It drives up the price of fuels because ethanol is ex more expensive than gasoline. It hurts fuel mileage because ethanol doesn't contain as much energy as gasoline, so you have to burn more of it. And it's actually harmful to certain engine parts. I think all of our listeners should take that to heart. The farm lobby, and I've spent a lot of my life working in agriculture and being very supportive, but the farm lobby maintains the renewable fuel standard because it probably increases the price of corn by a quarter or so. And uh, we're going to have a better president, surely in a little over two years, uh, whether it's the governor of Florida or Mr. Trump coming back. But I think it's time for everybody to realize the farmers will get along just fine without using part of their corn crop uh, for ethanol. And we've just constantly given in to the various farm lobbies as to ethanol. And there's always an early election in Iowa and all the politicians have to go in and promise to support ethanol. As you said, Tom, it has no good aspects. There is nothing good, reasonable of mixing ethanol into gasoline. And when uh, elections come around in a few years, that that's an issue, all of our listeners should be aware not to support it and to tell their Congress people and senators that it's time not to be ridden into the ground economically because of a farm lobby and a false belief that ethanol has some value as a fuel. Right. People I know at the refinery tell me currently 
ethanol has turned out to be useful in terms of ra raising the octane of fuels where, where, that's where that's needed. If you have a high performance car and need to have high octane fuel, ethanol is a useful agent for increasing octane. And so refineries, some refineries would use that for that reason in any case, but there's absolutely no reason to coerce the producers of fuels to use ethanol. It's absolutely counterproductive. Mm -hmm. So people should go to town hall hearings on ethanol and ask the politicians, why are you doing it? And not let them get away with lies, actually correct them on each of the different points. Exactly, exactly. Mm -hmm. And there's, there, you know, the, the, this, this refinery in terms of trying to get some relief, not, not just this refinery, but others. Uh, and by the way, quite a number of refineries have been closed down on the East Coast. And in uh, fact, seven, seven East Coast refineries have closed since 2009. And wow. there's only about four or five left remaining. And that's important because we don't have pipelines from the Gulf Coast up into the Northeast to deliver fuels. So these East Coast refineries are important to maintain a steady stream of diesel, gasoline and jet fuel for the Mid-Atlantic and Northeast. Mm -hmm. Let's get back to the refinery topic after the break. We've got to take a commercial. So we'll be right back after the break with Gordon Tom, Senior Fellow with the Commonwealth Foundation for Public Policy Alternatives. Oral hygiene hasn't changed in 50 years, but our diet and the way we eat has, creating an environment in your mouth for bacteria to wreak havoc on your teeth and gums. For better oral health, Get Spry Dental Defense, an oral care line designed to combat acid-creating bacteria. The toothpaste, mouthwash, mints, and gum all contain xylitol, a natural ingredient shown to dramatically improve oral health. Spry can be found online and at all fine natural retailers. Here on America Out Loud, we emphasize optimal health, and air is the most essential element for life. The average person inhales over 35 pounds of air every day. Yet we seldom think about how to rid the air of pathogens swiftly and safely when we need to. The Genesis Fogger Plus HOCL is the only way to quickly and naturally restore air to its optimal condition. Visit genesisfogger.com forward slash out loud for a free ebook on everything you need to know about HOCL and receive a 15% discount on the Genesis Fogger with promo code OUTLOUD. With Genesis, you'll be ready for what's next. America Out Loud beats to the pulse of our nation. We know when you're angry, you're troubled, confused, glad, and thankful. We know you because we are you. Join us as we explore the most important issues of our time. We are America Out Loud Talk Radio. Liberty and justice for all. For 40 years, alarmists have been warning of a climate catastrophe, yet none of their dire predictions have come true. Temperatures have not soared, sea level rise has not been unusual, and extreme weather events have not increased in either frequency or intensity. In short, there is no climate emergency. For 15 years, the International Climate Science Coalition has led the call for climate realism and a Made in America climate plan. 
a plan based on real science that responds to the real-world needs of Americans, supports economic growth, and strengthens our essential infrastructure. A plan that protects the environment and ensures that Americans can enjoy the blessings of clean air, clean land, and clean water for generations to come. It's time to put ideology and pseudoscience aside. It's time for a sensible climate plan. For more information or to donate, visit our website, icsc-climate.com. We're back with Gordon Tom, Senior Fellow with the Commonwealth Foundation for Public Policy Alternatives, a think tank based in Harrisburg, Pennsylvania. Jay, you had a question for Gordon. Yes, Gordon. I want to kind of pick a bone with all the organizations you work with and when you're speaking and when you're writing, you're always using the acronym REGI and it's R-G-G-I. And most people hear it, but they don't really know what it means. They just kind of know it's something bad unless they're liberals and they think it's good. And I think all of our organizations should more often spell out what we mean in full in order to educate the public and not just get them lost in abbreviations, which the government does on purpose. So what does REGI stand for? It's RGGI, and it stands for Regional Greenhouse Gas Initiative. And what it really is, is that it's a tax on emissions of carbon dioxide. In other words, if you're generating electricity with any kind of fossil fuel, you're going to get taxed on every ton of carbon dioxide you emit. So the, the effect is to raise the price of electricity for people. And in some cases, they raise the price of operating these plants to the point that they can no longer operate. Well, it sounds to me like the availability of energy on the East Coast is being squeezed. If I put it all together, it sounds like the availability of energy for all the citizens of the Northeast could be in trouble this winter or next winter or next summer. How would you describe the East Coast today as to energy availability? Well, there, there haven't been any emergencies declared, but we're certainly headed, I, I believe, we're on, on that path because the power grid that serves the Mid-Atlantic and North the Mid-Atlantic mainly, PJM, Pennsylvania, Jersey, Maryland Power Grid. In recent years, uh, quite a few, well, la- at least the last decade, more, more than a decade, have been allowing the construction of wind turbines and solar farms and have been giving them preferential treatment. In other words, this, at the behest of, of Pennsylvania and other states. Pennsylvania, for example, passed legislation in the mid-2000s to require that the share of electricity being produced by wind and solar increase over time. And the only way they could do that was to subsidize it because it's not an economical way of producing electricity. So they keep doing this, forcing unreliable, expensive energy sources on the public. The public's not even aware of it for the most part. The tax shows up on the people's electric bill along with a a gazillion other charges that nobody pays attention to. And uh, when you go ask the power grid, well, why are you doing this? They tell you, well, we're just following the lead of the states. And when you ask a state official, why is this happening? They say, well, 
if you would ask a legislator, for instance, why is this happening? He'd probably give you a blank, blank look. He goes, well, we don't deal with power. That's the power grid. There's a wonderful book called Shorting the Grid. And I, I'll never come up with the, the author's name right now, but it's called Shorting the Grid. And this woman who wrote this book, uh, I disagree with her on some things, but one of the things she pointed out, she was talking about the New England power grid, but it holds true for lots of power grids, including PJM. They are largely run by insiders, by specialists, by people who, who have an interest in a financial interest in the power grid. And they run it for their purposes. And the consumer has very little say in it. Very little say. Well, I did not know that, Gordon. And that is, you know, I know follow the money is the answer to so many problems that we have. It never occurred to me that that was the case with regard to the grid. I assume it was run by engineers that were trying to give the public the most efficient energy at the, uh, the lowest cost. But moving to a different source of energy, I believe you were very involved in the Three Mile Island situation in Pennsylvania, which was one of those scares that amounted to absolutely nothing. I think I'm correct. Absolutely not a single human being became ill, nor was the power grid threatened around Three Mile Island. It was a big to-do about nothing. I would even see it as safety things working properly. Could you tell our audience its history to them a little bit about the Three Mile Island situation and then whether you think uh, nuclear power could ever pay a, play a role in Pennsylvania? Oh, sure. The accident at Three Mile Island happened in March of 1979. I went to work there three years afterwards as part of an organization that was basically cleaning up after the accident. And I had a communications role there. And so I spent about 10 years working with local officials and the media in uh, managing the cleanup of that facility. So the, the short version is the accident happened when a pressure relief valve in, in the power plant stuck open, allowed water to escape, and the operators misread their instruments. The, the instruments were not designed to tell them directly what was happening. So they had to interpret uh, several instruments. They interpreted the instruments as saying that the reactor was becoming too full of water. There was too much water going into the reactor when in fact water was leaking out of the reactor. So they shut the flow of water going into the reactor. They shut that off. Well, the, that, at that point, the core, the nuclear core, 100, 100 ton nuclear fuel core became uncovered and half of it melted. Well, that's very, that was very serious physical damage to the plant. It was, it was a billion dollar project to clean it up. But as far as the health effects, the, the effect on the public, or for that matter, on the workers, there was none because the amount of radiation that escaped from the plant was tiny and too little to hurt anybody. And that, there, have been, there were numerous studies done to confirm that, at least a dozen that I know of. As an example, in I think it was 1986, Chernobyl had their accident over, over in, the, in Ukraine. That was a very serious accident. It was a huge explosion. It wasn't a nuclear explosion. I think it was a steam explosion. But it sent radioactive material into the atmosphere, which circled the globe. And lo and behold, 
the amount of radioactive iodine deposited two weeks after that accident in the Three Mile Island area was three times higher than the amount of radioactive iodine that was deposited by the Three Mile Island accident. We know this because these nuclear plants monitor very closely the environmental radiation around the plant. They, they take samples of milk and samples of vegetation and air samples constantly. So, so sorry, you mean that the radiation from Chernobyl was three times that from Three Mile Island? Yeah, the, the, the deposition of radioactive iodine, which is a pr common product coming from uh, damaged fuel, mm -hmm. was three times higher. The deposition of radioactive iodine at Three Mile Island was three times higher than it was after the TMI accident. It was well, still, very uh, small, the, the still very small the amount. But the problem at Three Mile Island, uh, will Pennsylvania ever welcome nuclear power again? Or is that one accident which sickened nobody uh, going to always stand in the way? It's going to be a political issue for a long time, I suppose. I'm in the camp of Tom, what's his name? Thomas Bryce. Bryce is his yes. Thomas Bryce, yeah, who wrote Power Hungry, right? His book about yep. 10 years or so ago. And I think he's right on the money. We're in a position now where fossil fuels, including natural gas, coal, and oil, are going to be around for a long, long time, decades and decades and decades. And eventually, we're going to transition to a nuclear-dominated economy. Because those are the technologies that are practical, affordable, and reliable. Unless there's some unforeseen breakthrough, which from time to time, there, there are such things, there are unforeseen breakthrough in solar or wind or something, that's the way it's going to go. And to plan otherwise is foolish. Mm -hmm. I understand that part of the reason Three Mile Island got such a bad rap was because it happened to coincide with Jane Fonda's movie, The China Syndrome. And uh, people just basically used the two together as a tool to go against nuclear. So it was really more of a PR exercise than an actual safety issue. Isn't that true? It's true that the, that movie certainly didn't help the cause, didn't help the situation. And, and I, but I don't want to minimize that, you know, when you have a, an accident in a nuclear power plant, just because of public perception, it scares people. And I, I understand fully why people might have been scared. For one thing, the utility didn't do a very good job in its communications during that accident. It was disorganized. Information was inconsistent and sometimes non-existent early on. So a lot of my time at, the, at Three Mile Island, the time of a lot of other people was spent on developing emergency plans and emergency communications protocol to, to deal with that kind of thing. Well, you mentioned Chernobyl and, uh, you know, everybody knows about Chernobyl, but few people know the end of the story. I'll spend a minute telling them. But first of all, you did mention that Chernobyl was a location in Ukraine when Russia was totally in charge of Ukraine. Yes. The, the accident there uh, was a mistake by the people running the plant they actually were running a bit of an experiment on the controls and the plant had no cover structure. And in the end, uh, it was an explosion uh, rather you know, than a radiation problem initially. But the total death toll, which few people realize, was 49, uh, roughly half died of the 
fire and the explosion and half within weeks from the radiation. But everybody thought that the cloud that went around the world was predicted ultimately to create 30,000 additional cancer deaths. And after years and years of studies, they cannot find a single uh, increase in a cancer death as a uh, result of the radiation. And it's because the wind just makes the concentrations so mute, no one gets sick. I mean, I was on, (laughs) after Fukushima, I did 23 network television shows on the accident because I had just published a book on nuclear power. And when I explained that the winds at Fukushima would spread the radiation to the point that no one would get sick, no one would die. Uh, I got death threats for three years for saying such a thing, but uh, it wasn't rocket science and and I was correct. But Three Mile Island is definitely one of the, the biggest uh, public relations disaster. And it's fun to be able to talk to someone who was actually on site. And you said, actually, you worked there for nearly 10 years. And that's how long the fear was in the minds of the public, uh, even though the radiation release uh, had no effect on public health. Uh, Exactly right. And to this day, you can still find people in this area who will insist, insist otherwise, but, you know, people get things locked in their head and that's that. (laughs) <laughs> so even in the case of the world's worst nuclear accident, which I guess was Chernobyl, right. you're saying, Jay, that the long term and Gordon, you're saying that the long term distributed effect of the radiation as it spread around the earth was negligible. It was indeed uh, negligible. It took years to prove it because the naysayers would say, well, we don't have the health records yet to see the cancer rates in different countries and localities downwind uh, from Chernobyl. But once they had enough data and enough years went by, the result was exactly what you say. It was uh, negligible. And in Fukushima, it was beyond negligible. Literally not a single person got sick or died. Now, that isn't quite accurate because they estimate that the uh, death rate of older people was perhaps 1,600 people more than would have died of natural causes if they were not uprooted from their homes and moved to lean-to-type housing, often without their medications, uh, over the the next few years. So the the threat uh, of the fear itself actually did uh, cause fatalities, but they were totally unrelated to uh, nuclear radiation, and that was the case with uh, Chernobyl. But as Gordon just said, there are still people around Three Mile Island uh, that maintain some fear, and there are certainly people around the world who are still concerned with Chernobyl. Mm -hmm. Yeah, there's an irrational fear around radiation. Radiation certainly has to be respected, but regulations in the United States and elsewhere, but I'll just speak about the United States. Regulations in the United States are not rational. For as long as I was involved in the industry and it continues today, the Net Nuclear Nuclear Regulatory Commission assumes there's a health risk to any amount of radiation exposure right down to zero. And that's just absolutely nonsensical because we're, we're, we're bathed in radiation on a daily basis from 
what's emitted from the earth and what comes in from outer space and your level of exposure varies according to your locale. You're, you get more radiation in Denver than you do in Atlantic City. You get more radiation at 30,000 feet in an air, airliner than you do driving down the Pennsylvania Turnpike. So these regulations, federal regulations, don't, don't do anything to help alleviate people's fear of radiation. They over-regulate radiation exposure, drive up the cost of nuclear power, and, and make it harder to advance the technology. So if a sensible president comes in in a couple of years, you would ask them to actually greatly pull back on the regulations and allow nuclear to expand at a much lesser cost then. Yeah, that would be my recommendation. And that that's the recommendation of a lot of people inside the industry. It doesn't get talked about a lot because I, I don't think they see much of a possibility of it happening right now. But mm-hmm. Why do you think environmentalists are so opposed to it? I mean, besides just plain ignorance, there must be some vested interest that makes them want to have no nuclear. I think the answer to that depends on what environmentalists you're talking about. But the most radical environmentalists, they're, they're, really, they're really opposed to people. Um, they don't think there should be 7 billion people in the world. They probably think it's more like 7,000 or 70,000 or 700,000, or I don't know what their magic number is, but they're, they're, they're basically anti-people. They're, it's an anti, anti-human impact is their mm-hmm. position. You should not have any kind of impact uh, on nature when in fact uh, we're living longer and have healthier lives because we have had a huge impact on nature in terms of controlling the ill effects of, of weather, the ill effects of disease and, uh, and hunger. Mm-hmm. You know, this anti-human aspect of various environmentalists, it's, it's quite well portrayed in one group and that's called the Voluntary Human Extinction Movement. And it actually has many thousands of members actually across the United States, Voluntary Human Extinction Movement. And they're not saying we should all go and commit suicide because of course, if that were the case, then they would disappear pretty quick. But uh, they say that none of us should have children so that the earth should return to its so-called natural condition before humans came along. Which, of course, raises the question, are humans then supernatural? Like, if we're not natural, what are we? But, yeah, some of these people are, are completely crazy. Yeah, it's a really a perverse, it's a perverse worldview that, that too many of us have sat by idly and allowed to prevail in, 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 among people in power. I, I, you know, like some of the woke CEOs, I don't think they actually know what worldview they're representing. But... Uh, it's, it's frustrating. Yeah, we need people with a lot more courage, that's for sure. I'd like to circle back to your point about how poor our nuclear regulation is. Uh, to be specific, there's a model called the linear no threshold model or the LNT that was developed back in the 1920s on, on absolutely false data that says what you said, one molecule of radiation can cause cancer. It's yes. crazy, and it drives up the cost of everything. I actually, in uh, testifying today on the ozone standard, I said you don't need to relook at the ozone standard to lower it, but you might relook at the linear no threshold model that has a lot to do with determining what levels you want various chemicals to exist in the, in the environment. Mm-hmm. Jay, can you tell us a, a bit about your testimony today? Yes, I'm pretty frequently asked by EPA 
to give testimony to a advisory science board uh, for EPA as they study various environmental regulations. Uh, today, they wanted to take a new look at the ozone standard. Now, ozone they're talking about is O3, and the molecule O3, if uh, taken in and breathing uh, too much, can cause asthmatic type problems. And the, the standard has an effect on the use of diesel fuel in trucks and factories. And the current standard is that they allow on a continuing basis 70 parts per billion. That's what 0.007 parts per million uh, particles of O3, ozone in the air. And they were, were having a hearing on making that standard even lower. And if they do so, it throws a monkey wrench into the trucking industry. You know, right now, inflation is going crazy. That supply chain will get more expensive if they lower that standard. Many, many factories e emit ozone generally at very low levels, more in the order of 20 or 30 parts per billion. But if they strengthen the standard, it's going to have a tremendous economic impact. But what they don't understand is that economic impact causes more health problems than could possibly occur from the parts per billion of ozone that are in the air. Because what they do when they strengthen the standard, they throw people out of work. There's more yeah. unemployment. And from unemployment is way more health problems than a little bit of extra ozone that you might breathe in for a few hours. Wow, that's yeah. crazy, eh? Jeez. Yeah. Well, uh, Gordon, you actually work with the CO2 coalition as well. What is your role there? Same with, with the Commonwealth Foundation, essentially, is I mostly research and write about energy issues. And uh, with the CO2 coalition, there's, there's more of a focus on climate. And uh, Jay's reference to the linear no threshold model for ozone and radiation exposures, I heard a little bit of that in reference to exposure to carbon dioxide. I actually heard a Penn State professor testify in court that every molecule of carbon dioxide put into the atmosphere is harmful. This man actually said that multiple mm. times. Now think about that. Carbon dioxide is absolutely essential to life. If we get to 150 parts per million from the current level of 400 and some odd parts per million, if we get to 150 parts per million, plant life starts to die. So... <laughs> What do you think of Patrick Moore's thought that if we had not come along and released CO2 from fossil fuels, that CO2 was headed down to a level that would be dangerous to life on Earth? And he says that we've saved life on Earth as a result of our CO2 emissions. Do you think you haven't, does that have any validity in your point? I, I think it's absolutely a plausible thought. That thought occurred to me as I was helping to edit Greg Wrightstone's book, Inconvenient Facts, and I became more and more aware of, of the role of CO2 and, and the level of CO2 and what, what the historical levels have been, that we got down at some point, I think within the last 12,000 years or so, levels reached 180 parts per million, which is not far off that 150 parts per million uh, threshold with the, the Greg likes to call the um, zone of death or some such thing. 
Mm-hmm. But um, yeah, if, if it gets too low, it's a problem. Mm-hmm. And yet, of course, they boost it in greenhouses specifically to increase plant growth and to reduce their need for water. Because I understand, and Jay, you can correct me if I'm wrong on this, but I understand that most of the plants in our environment right now evolved at a time when CO2 levels were higher than today. Is that true? It's absolutely true. When the dinosaurs walked the earth, it was probably 6,000 parts per million. And the average through all the geologic time we've studied is over 2,000 parts per million. And I always, I've worked on a, for a short period of time on a nuclear submarine, the average carbon dioxide uh, on a submarine that can stand water for months at a time is uh, 5,000. There is no upper limit that we know of where it's negative, but as uh, Gordon said, we know for sure at 150 things start uh, dying. And I think Patrick Moore is exactly right that we very likely saved the planet when we started burning fossil fuels. And uh, I'm going to, I'm arguing this point. I have a, my younger daughter is a TV anchor and, and reporter. And as much as she knows, I've been involved in the climate change fraud for 50 years. Uh, she believes more what she gets from all her friends in the media every day. She can't believe the whole world could be as crazy as in fact uh, it is. And uh, I think my next argument with her will be uh, Patrick Moore's uh, point of view. And I think it behooves all of us to turn everything around to a positive, talking about how fabulous carbon dioxide is. We need more of it. It saved the planet instead of defending and saying, oh, it really isn't bad. We ought to talk Mm -hmm. about how good it is. That's 100% on the mark as far as I'm concerned. In fact, as I'm, I'm sure you guys have said this before on this, on this show that recent increases in carbon dioxide levels in the atmosphere led to an overall greening of the earth. And mm-hmm. uh, people are benefiting from it in, in a big way because the crop production is up and uh, people are eating more food. So when people say, oh, my God, the CO2 levels have risen 48% to 420 parts per million, the answer is, Hooray! <laughs> exactly. <laughs> oh, it's so crazy. It's like 1984, right? <laughs> yeah. I'm afraid you're right. Well, I'm uh, one final point that I'm working on on the positive aspects of carbon dioxide. I'm working on an article on the importance of carbon dioxide in your body. Uh, my exceptionally good health is very likely due to the fact that I breathe through my nose, not my mouth. I try to breathe as little as I can. The reason being, I want to keep carbon dioxide in my body. And when the carbon dioxide within your body, I mean, obviously oxygen is important, but in many ways, carbon dioxide is even more important to human health. And it's a very complicated subject. I've been working on an article to simplify it and explain not only is carbon dioxide good for all the things we've talked about in terms of plant life and greening uh, the atmosphere. Uh, It also plays an important role in human health medically within your body. So uh, hopefully in a few weeks down the road, I will have simplified it enough to publish the article. Yeah, that's great. So Gordon, can you tell us about any future projects that you can describe on air? I would like to see people in the coal industry in the power plant industry to to take a firmer stand 
for themselves and their and their work. My father uh, passed away May 6th at the age, ripe old age of 95. He worked 42 years in a coal-fired power plant. He, he started out as a bulldozer operator in 1946 and worked there right up until 1988. Well, I bought Alec Epstein's latest book, Fossil Future, which says we should be using more fossil fuels instead of fewer, right? And, and he lays out the reasons why. I bought a copy of that and I sent it to local 459 International Brotherhood of Electrical Workers and the president of that local. I sent it to that, that man and I with a note saying, I'm donating this book to your local in memory of my father. Mm -hmm. How nice. Well, yeah. I reviewed that. Uh, I wrote a review of Alex's book, which will be published at uh, cfact.org next week, a partial mm -hmm. review of it is actually at cfact.org now when I gave a full review of a very optimistic book called The Cloud Revolution. But I recommend that uh, when people read Fossil Future, uh, they read a little bit every day so they can absorb it and be better warriors with their friends to put forth the kind of ideas that we've been talking about the past hour. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And they should take a page out of another book that I've been listening to on Audible. It's called Rules for Radical Conservatives. And it actually talks about how the left took over so many of our institutions. I'd love to talk more with you, Gordon, but we're out of time. <laughs> so this has been our interview with Gordon Tom, senior fellow with the Commonwealth Foundation and also a senior advisor for the CO2 coalition. We've been learning a lot about the real situation with regards to nuclear and carbon dioxide. So thanks for being on the show, Gordon. Thank you very much for having me. Okay, so this is Dr. Jay Lair and Tom Harris signing out from the other side of the story. Thank you.